Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Piercy Alley and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Lucy Main, a master's student at Monash University. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today we're tackling a very controversial subject of same-sex marriage. And people seem to have very strong views one way or the other and sort of have their own reasons behind the views as well. So hopefully in this interview we've managed to cover a lot of ground and make for some very interesting listening. And to quote Luce Rigoray, I love to you. Do you think that if same-sex marriage is legalised in Australia, it would result in amplified societal acceptance of LGBT community? And I'm speaking to Dr. Louise Richardson Self. Well, it's hard to say. My my inkling is that the same-sex marriage debate in and of itself has already to some extent amplified the societal acceptance of LGBT people. We do have a reasonably tolerant society in Australia at the moment. I think part of that has come from a lot of campaigning in favour of this law, but also the fact that we do have other forms of relationship recognition which same-sex couples can enter into already. So, for example, for a few years now, same-sex couples have been recognised federally in the same way that de facto couples are. And also, there are a few states and territories which recognise basically civil unions between same-sex couples as well. And what we're finding in Australia at the moment is that in terms of support for same-sex marriage, it seems that the majority of Australians are already there. They already are in favour of this legal change and it's rather the law that's lagging behind. So I'm not sure that it would alter the acceptance of LGBT people in terms of how they're accepted in society because it seems that that process has been going on for quite some time now and starting before the marriage debate came up too, I think. Yeah, I think sometimes the law has to change first before people's acceptance of of a certain thing actually changes. That sort of follows afterwards, doesn't it? Yeah, sometimes it happens that way and sometimes the people lead the law. And I think you've got an interesting cyclical movement in Australia where you've had 
uh, a bit of pressure, which has encouraged the government to recognise same-sex couples under de facto laws, as with other heterosexual couples. And this, in turn, has spawned more acceptance of same-sex relationships generally, which has pushed for increasing recognition and really driven the bulk of the same-sex marriage movement on a federal level. So I think, I think it is cyclical. I think it's an interplay between the law and public opinion. Yes, with the, with the situation with civil unions, I mean, just myself, I can sort of draw a parallel between same-sex couples being able to have a civil union and uh, back, back in the days in America when African-American people were kept as slaves, they actually weren't allowed to marry. They used to jump, they'd say, I oh, will jump the broom. And it was because they weren't seen as being humans. They were seen as being less than humans. So Mm -hmm. do you think that by, you know, how it has been argued that not allowing same-sex marriage is a violation of of human right and that people who are of the same sex and want to get married are actually viewed in society as being less than human? There's been a couple of different arguments surrounding the aspect of human rights in terms of same-sex marriage. So it's definitely the case that there is a symbolic aspect to marriage, and that's one of the reasons why people are not satisfied with a quote-unquote separate but equal institution for people who identify as same-sex attracted. I'm not sure that that necessarily implies that LGBT people are seen as less than human. I don't think that the analogy necessarily goes all the way between race and sexual orientation. But nonetheless, there is a a symbolic aspect of refusing recognition equally under marriage law, which implies that same-sex relationships are not as worthy or valuable as heterosexual relationships. And that's something that a lot of same-sex couples have really pushed back against. But then there's also the fact that marriage is something which is specifically referred to in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So it's the idea that marriage is something in and of itself which people ought to have a right to. Now, we can also debate about whether that really is a human right or whether that's, in fact, a civil right. Personally, I'm more inclined to think that if same-sex marriage is an issue of human rights at all, then it's one of liberty and it's a failure to respect the dignity of each other as human persons. In saying that, I don't think that implies that people are less than human. What are the three conceptions of tolerance and the objective component So when I've been doing my research into same-sex marriage, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of tolerance and whether bringing about a state of affairs where society is tolerant of same-sex relationships is necessarily the best or ideal outcome that we want to achieve. So to think through this issue, I've had to get a little bit clearer about what tolerance might mean. Now, a philosopher named Rainer Forst has done a lot of work on tolerance and also on human rights. 
And he's identified a couple of different conceptions of tolerance in order to think through what it might mean to be tolerant of other people. So the first conception of tolerance is the permission conception of tolerance. So if we imagine a society where there's a majority group and a minority group, then the permission conception of tolerance would look something like the following. The majority group would allow, to a certain extent, the behaviours or practices of the minority group. However, if the minority group tried to push for more recognition of their own diverse ways of life, then this would be breaching the limits of tolerance. So the permission conception basically says we will tolerate you up to the point that we have designated as the majority group and if you push any further than that, we will not respect your differences at all. This compares to what Forst has called the respect conception of tolerance and this ties in with his broader idea about what human rights require. And essentially he believes that there are two general conditions that a rights claim must meet. So it's the idea of reciprocity and generality. You don't create a social state of affairs that is for you and not for others and you also include all relevant parties in the discussion and the construction of human rights. Now, in the case of the respect conception for tolerance, a person must tolerate the behaviours of another person or another group insofar as what they're doing doesn't interfere with these two conditions of reciprocity and generality. And the other thing to point out specifically with relation to the respect conception of tolerance is that force does make a distinction between what he calls the moral and the ethical. So ethical values or norms are ideas that are shared or values that are shared by a particular community and they might dictate what is the good life for a particular collective of people but they are not universally applicable to everyone. Moral norms are the norms which apply to all persons equally. So if your objection to someone's practices is based on your own ethical system of beliefs, that in itself is not enough to justify you withholding tolerance from that group, especially if the requirements of reciprocity and generality are met by that group. And then finally, there's the esteem conception of tolerance, which is actually uh, quite quite a high benchmark to set and to some it doesn't really sound like tolerance at all. So the idea is that you recognise that other groups in society live their lives differently to you and you recognise as well that those ways of life are deserving of some kind of esteem. However, you believe that their way of life is not as good as your way of life and so, in effect, you are still tolerating their practices because the way that they are living is not as good as it could be. Now, there is a question as to whether or not this really is tolerance or whether it's something else, but Force maintains that it is because there's a hierarchical determination of 
what is the best way of life and which ways of life are lesser than that. So the other thing that's important to remember about tolerance as well is that it has an objection component and also an acceptance component. Now, an objection component basically just means that there is something about the practice which is deemed undesirable or disagreeable or something like this. However, there are also positive reasons for you to tolerate the difference irrespective of the fact that you think it's bad. So, for example, there could be good pragmatic reasons about ensuring the well-being of children or keeping the peace or whatever it happens to be, right? So basically it's to say, look, this practice is no good. However, I recognise that I'm judging it uh, as no good in a context where there are also some positive reasons to accept the practice anyway. So I will tolerate it on those grounds. Now, importantly, the objection component is not legitimate if it's based on prejudice. So a person who deems a practice objectionable has to be able to explain why it is objectionable according to reasons that are sufficiently defensible. So according to force, they don't have to be shared by everybody, but they have to be intelligible and acceptable, even to a person who doesn't necessarily share that same point of view. What is the paradox of the tolerance racist? Uh, that's a really interesting paradox that Force brings up in his discussions on tolerance as well. So I mentioned just briefly that you have to have a reason that is sufficiently defensible if your objection component is to be considered legitimate. Now, Force brings up the paradox of the tolerant racist in order to demonstrate that prejudice cannot count and that, in fact, we have a duty when we encounter prejudice to try to convince people why their views are wrong. So here's how the paradox goes. Someone with extreme racist antipathies would be described as tolerant in the sense of a virtue, providing that he showed restraint in his actions without changing his way of thinking. But to be tolerant in this scenario actually isn't a virtue because the objections to that person and his or her actions are based on prejudicial assumptions about his or her race. So... Basically, Force thinks that this is unacceptable. He thinks that even having a prejudicial opinion about people, even though you don't directly commit any hate crimes or, or anything else that would suggest that you are intolerant, you should not be praised for your tolerance if your point of view is that, for example, white people form the superior race. And it is our duty to engage in conversation with those people to reject the prejudice and to attempt to convince them that their grounds for objection are, are unacceptable. They're irrational, completely unreasonable. And I think that this paradox is quite interesting because it leads me personally to the question of whether 
same-sex marriage then is something which should be tolerated or whether it falls under a similar category as the paradox of the tolerant racist. So I'm left with the question, is tolerance an appropriate response to same-sex marriage or is the objection to same-sex marriage based on prejudice and should we repudiate it and try to convince people that they are wrong? Could you give us some insights from sexual difference feminism? Sure. So one of the reasons that I tried to introduce some insights from sexual difference feminism to this topic of tolerance and human rights is that it has at its core a, an illumination of who the implicit subject of human rights is that theorists normally talk about or imagine when they're trying to come up with some sort of list or description of what human rights we have or what aspects of life are fundamental to human flourishing and so on and so forth. So it goes back to the feminist difference equality debate. So in one camp, you have feminists who put forward arguments in favour of women's rights which stress all of the similarities between men and women and which minimise or disavow any of the differences between men and women. Now, what you tend to find is that if you don't actually challenge the standard which is already set, but you try to fit yourself into the mould of that standard, then women still lose out in various ways because there are some differences which need to be taken into account. For example, it's been the case in the past in the States where women have had to argue the case that Pregnancy is like having a hernia, and so they should be entitled to time off. So the difference camp says, look, there clearly are similarities between men and women. There are also differences. We don't need to minimise these. In fact, we should champion them and put them to the forefront of our debates and instead target the implicit standard that everyone's been trying to meet up until this point. Let's critically interrogate this standard. Let's see whether there is any justification for perpetuating this standard. And if there isn't, then let's think about ways that we can explicitly recognise difference in a way that facilitates human understanding and human flourishing. And I think that that is a really interesting idea to bring into the same-sex marriage debate because... A lot of the time, people who are in favour of same-sex marriage will minimise the fact that there is any difference between a same-sex couple and a different sex couple, whereas the people who oppose same-sex marriage basically put all of their emphasis on the fact that there is a difference between same-sex couples and different sex couples. So my thought is, can we acknowledge that there is a difference and still argue that there is a right to same-sex marriage, and I think that we can. Would you be able to elaborate on Irigaray's philosophy of sexuate difference? Sure. So, Luce Irigaray is perhaps one of the most famous 
philosophers and feminist thinkers who has emphasised sexual difference between men and women. And she has very critically interrogated the Western canon, particularly in philosophy but also in psychoanalysis, investigating what assumptions they had about not only who the fundamental human person was but what character traits that fundamental universal person had. And it turns out to be the case that in a lot of Western literature, particularly in philosophy but not only there, and especially through the Enlightenment period as well, there is an assumption that the individual is implicitly masculine, implicitly male, also implicitly heterosexual, implicitly white or Eurocentric or Western, uh, implicitly rational and unemotional, implicitly a property owner, implicitly able-bodied and so on and so forth. And what you find is that there's a particular hegemonic subject which is assumed at the basis of all of this discourse when in real life the individuals who meet that standard don't actually make up a massive demographic. However, they do in fact hold the majority of power in all of these particular realms. So she has been a figure that's really brought to the front that Western thinking generally presumes oneness and it presumes unity. And her suggestion has been, what if we think through the lens of two? So instead of thinking about the one and the many, instead of spending our time talking about all of these different categories of people, what if we go back to our very fundamental assumptions about what humanity looks like and we don't envision it as one, but we envision it as two? And I think that that's been a really interesting way to look at other human differences as well because there are differences in the kinds of discrimination, for example, that a lesbian woman will face when compared with a gay man. So our cultural assumptions about the inherent connection between the sex of one's body and the gender that they present as and then the roles that they will go on to fulfil as well as the fact that they will naturally have a heterosexual desire. This is all tied up in a kind of cultural imaginary that seeps into our consciousness as normal. And she's trying to really put a spotlight on that and say these assumptions that we have about men and women and femininity are really based on an idea of man, the figure, as complete and the standard to which all others should try to meet. Every other individual is just a poor copy of this hegemonic subject. So let's try to take down this implicit notion that we have of humanity and who the fundamental individual is and see if we can start focusing on difference, recognising that there's a limit to our own subjectivity and opening up a shared space for communication between and across our differences. And how does forced philosophy differ from a rigorous? Well, 
I think that there are some differences uh, in terms of their tradition and in terms of their focus. I would say that probably the the main difference would be the focus on difference. Now, Forst does, in fact, focus on difference. He thinks that essentially starting from one's own position in the world in order to come to these constructive dialogues about human rights is very important. But he hasn't spent as much time focusing on difference and just how deep this ingrained appeal to oneness and unity really is in the Western tradition. And that's where I think that Lusa Rigori can come in and facilitate a reading between the two on the topic of same-sex marriage. And I think that there are actually three key similarities in their scholarship, even though they, they do differ in terms of tradition very significantly. So... I would say that those three Ds are difference, discourse, and dignity. Difference, as I just mentioned, is present in forced philosophy, but is much more forceful in a rigorized. And so she really facilitates a reading about what human rights should look like. And I think also should lead us to the conclusion that tolerance is not the appropriate response to same-sex marriage and that, in fact, we should repudiate people's opposition to it, designating it as prejudice, and then try to engage in conversations about why this difference is not harmful or scary or wrong or unnatural or any of these things. Discourse is the second D. They both have a really big focus on the power of communication. That's the communication that's necessary in discussing and defining what we think is fundamental to human life and to social life and to political life and also just the discourse amongst ourselves, learning to reintegrate ourselves into the public sphere of discourse from a position that recognises one's own limited subjectivity and is willing to not only participate in the discussion but also to listen to what is said in the discussion. And then finally... I think that their concepts of dignity are actually quite similar as well. So it seems to be the case that for forced, you recognise someone's dignity when you acknowledge that they have a basic right to justification for the norms and laws that they have to live by in their particular society. So if same-sex couples, for example propose that the law banning them from getting married is unfair, they have a basic right to justification. And the onus is on the people who would maintain the status quo to come up with sufficiently defensible reasons for why the law needs to be this way. And Forced in his own work, and I agree with him, have already said that, look, just, there are no such defensible reasons because... They are not based on morals, they are based on ethical codes, and that's not universalizable. For Rigori, the dignity comes into the, fa- into the picture when we recognize that the other is irreducibly different to ourselves. 
And that doesn't mean some sort of essentialist understanding of difference where difference is fixed and eternal and unchanging. Differences can evolve and become more salient or less salient as time progresses. The point is that we respect each other as dignified people when we encounter them without the assumption that they will strive to assimilate to the vision of the hegemonic Western subject, basically. Look, there's some people, such as myself, who would say that uh, they don't want to conform to they don't want marriage and they don't want to conform to any marriages because they consider that they're conforming to well, what I consider to be a oppressive heterosexual stereotype. Yeah, look, that's definitely been a very strong argument from people within the queer community themselves. And I can see where they're coming from because I personally don't want to marry or to follow those kind of stereotypes of family and so on. However, marriage is something which does have such symbolic presence in our culture. It's it's really tied up in everything that we do, all of the all of the media that we see, the stories that we hear, the narratives that we're told. Marriage has been a central feature of human life for a very long time. And it is the case as well that the institution of marriage has undergone transformations within itself. So, for example, now people have access to no-fault divorce laws, which they didn't have in the past. So it seems to be the case that there's nothing necessarily preventing the institution itself from becoming more egalitarian. And perhaps the entry of gay and lesbian couples or same-sex couples into marriage might encourage heterosexual couples to start structuring their relationships along more egalitarian lines as well. Yeah, it's a very good point. All right, I'll just... Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. No problem. Thanks again for having me. It's been my pleasure. And I've been speaking to Dr. Louise Richardson Self about same-sex marriage. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for your company.